Because of that essay I found from Josephine Pasternak, I uh, wrote a musical about the White Rose, and I realized that I never would have found any of that if it weren't for you and for the classes that I took with you, and I never would have been in the archives at all. This is Jennifer Rosenfeld, and you're listening to part three of the White Rose podcast. Here's the great irony about this project. I never would have written a musical about the White Rose if I hadn't been a Russian literature major. Not only was that the subject matter that led me to the Hoover archives where I discovered Josephine's document, but it was also through studying the works of Boris Pasternak and other literary, musical, and artistic figures in 20th century Russia that gave me the intellectual and artistic outlook that would shape how I came to understand The White Rose when I returned to that subject matter later. I really have to credit my deep interest in Russia in large part to my professor and senior honors thesis advisor, Lazar Fleischmann. You know, I am really very grateful to you for stirring the memories about our uh, conversations about the subject. And it is really a fascinating episode in, I would say, the Pasternak family's life. And perhaps for those who are interested in German intellectual history of the pre-war and war period, this is a somewhat alien theme for me, but it made it even more intriguing Mm-hmm. for me to somewhat plunge into this material. And here's something else that's so fascinating to me and is really more of a recent discovery, which is the role that Russia and contact with Russia and Russian people played for the members of the White Rose and in the actions they chose to make. Alexander Schmorel, one of the members of the group, was Russian, and his role in the group, as emphasized by Josephine, is something that I think is sort of underappreciated in our English-speaking understanding of the material. And the events of 1942, when the members of the White Rose went to Russia, the Battle of Stalingrad, all of these had tremendous consequences for the choices that the members of this group made at the beginning of 1943. So I was so excited to speak with my professor. I knew he could offer some insight into helping us understand it through his knowledge of Josephine, the Pasternak family, and the time period. I read Josephine's memoir, Tightrope Walking. It recounts her life during, you know, her teenage years, early 20s. One convenient thing about Josephine Pasternak is that she was born in the year 1900, so it makes it really easy to track what age she was at the different stages of this story, different moments over the course of the 20th century. It was interesting to hear more about her. It sounds like in the family uh, there were these great artistic luminaries. It sounds to me like perhaps she had some potential, but that was not able to be expressed due to her own anxieties, but also the constant moving around and just the nature of the times. But it was interesting to sort of see a portrait of her at those ages, too. She wrote poetry herself, published two books of poetry, and uh, her younger sister also was a poet, also wrote poetry, translated her brother's poetry into English. You can imagine how intense was spiritual Mm -hmm. one in this family. 
<laughs> of course, much of this intensity was under direct impact of their parents. And indeed, the children from early childhood were present at the meetings, at the counter, at the intellectual exchange of whom we now consider to be one of the most prominent figures in Russian cultural time of the so-called Silver Age, pre-revolutionary and post-revolutionary. He's talking about Leonid Pasternak, who was Josephine's father. He was one of the great painters in Russia. As it turns out, Professor Fleischmann had actually met Josephine just a few years before her death. I, I met with her once and wow. had quite a long conversation. Yes, it was uh, in 1990. She was still beautiful, a beautiful lady, you know, with a lot of charm. She uh, led the conversation also very intense in the discussion of a large variety of subjects. Now, uh, what I would like to say, she departed from Moscow, from Soviet Russia, at the age of 21. And everyone in the family was fearful for her because of her assumed inability to adjust herself to the external world. Some think of this sort you probably detected from her recollections. It bordered on the, on the boundary between sanity and insanity at some age and some period, especially after the death of her father in 1945. It was during that period that she wrote her comments about the White Rose. So she departed from Russia and initially moved to Berlin. In 1921, in the same year when the Schmorals left Soviet Russia, and it can be imagined that they could meet at the German embassy prior to their departure. This was the beginning of the diplomatic relations between the new state, the Soviet Union. And my understanding is that she went to Germany to go to school because as a bourgeois person, is that true? Or That's one of the explanations that we should not take at face value. Okay. In the Soviet Union in the 1920s, the educated, artistic, intellectual families were suddenly enemies of the people under the new communist regime. And as a result, for Josephine, who was in her early 20s, she was apparently unable to go to university in the Soviet Union. So that was what prompted her move to Germany. At least that was the explanation that she provided in her memoir, Tightrope Walking, but Professor Fleischmann suggests that there might be more to the story. She never wanted to attach any kind of the hint at political interpretation of the changes in her life and in the life of her parents hmm. and siblings. Why is that? First of all, because of the deep a political stand that pervaded in their family, in the entire family. But second, because her brothers remained in the Soviet Union. And mm -hmm. there was a third reason as well. She always was longing of returning 
to Russia in the belief that we will encounter in the Soviet Union, even under Stalin, the kind of life they enjoyed so much prior to the revolution. Of course, this is a utopian, a crazy idea, and uh, thank God she never, you know, uh, realized it. I think that it was only when uh, Josefin moved to Munich in 1924, moved to Munich with her newlywed husband, mm. her second cousin, Fyodor, who occupied a very prominent position at the Mendelssohn Bank. Mm. And the Mendelssohn Bank um, arguably was the richest bank in Weimar, Germany, that was confiscated by the Nazis in 1938, when they were able to move for England in 1938. Okay, that's a background. We're discussing how it came to be that Josephine and the Pasternak family got to know the Schmorel family. So it's 1924, but I'm not sure that they met frequently with this family before... Leonid and Ravalia Josephine's parents started visiting them in Munich, usually for summer holidays. I can imagine how it happened because, you know, they were looking, first of all, of course, for a physician. Alexander's father, Hugo, became the family doctor of the Pasternaks in Munich. And second, for a Russian-speaking family. And uh, I think that's how developed such close relations between two families, whereas I don't think that the contact between Josephine and um, Alexander or Shurik. Shurik was Alexander's Russian nickname. Played such a significant role if you imagine how large was the difference in age. He wanted to be a sculptor, so I wonder if yeah. he took any influence from Leonid. Of course, they uh, admired visual art and painting, and of course, respected very much Leonid Pasternak, who was able to win a very prominent reputation in Germany during the late 20s and early 30s. In Germany, Leonid Pasternak and Rosalia Isidorovna, they were surrounded by people of approximately similar standing in intellectual elite as it used to be in Russia earlier, dominated, by the way, by Jews, by Jews in Weimar, Germany. The Pasternak family was Jewish as well, which was part of the reason that they had to flee Germany in 1938 for England. And their relationship with their with being Jewish is a whole other interesting story. And uh, so from the point of view of this family, of the family of the Schmorals, acquaintance with such people was, of course, a very valuable mm-hmm. aspect of, of life. So what he's saying, and this is significant for White Rose purposes, is that Alexander grew up in a home that was not only cosmopolitan in his experiences of artistic people and the Russian emigres, but also it was common for there to be Jews in his home growing up. And this also shaped his worldview. You know, of course, they were very much welcome welcome in um, the Schmorals family, especially because of its distinctly a Russian character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's 
It was interesting to me because so much of the literature about the white rose that's available in English is about Hans and Sophie Scholl. But um, it seems like Alexander played a very, very important role in the formation of those ideas. But also, I know they had a family friend who he traveled in Eastern Europe, and he was the one who saw the the death camps and all of that and conveyed that information to the Schmorl family. And then when Alexander and Hans and the other students went to the Eastern Front in the fall of 1942, it was Alexander who was the translator and they all sort of became enamored with Russia and that was a big part of their motivation to do what they did at the end. So I think he's sort of underrepresented in our English understanding of what happened. So it's it's interesting. A very interesting point in uh, Josephine's article written in 1953 where she complains that it is too near and too far at the same time to the moment of her writing down. It is at once too near and too far from our own time. Too near because only in historical perspective will an adequate consideration be possible. Too far because, though highly topical at the time of its happening, after 10 years, the Munich incident has fallen into oblivion and is hardly known, not only by the general public, but even by students of the Hitler era in Germany. And who explains why it is too near? Because, you know, not there are no sufficiently rich literature, and uh, including memoir literature about them. And we, we can imagine, you know, in 1953, German, Western, West Germany was just four years old. Mm-hmm. It was a new state. And, of course, we must imagine all in, instability of uh, political, historical situation of this time to, in order to better, you mm. know, uh, grasp the complex, complexity of the issue that she was struggling writing this. What it precisely prompted her to write this article? I, well, perhaps it, simply the 10th anniversary and the scarcity of reminiscences or writings mm. about them, at least scarcity of the writing that would satisfy her. The best clue I can find as far as Josephine's motivation for writing this essay is found in the letter she wrote to Professor John Neff, who had written an article that inspired her to draw parallels between the White Rose and a philosophical point he was trying to make about the role the mind has played in human history. In this letter she wrote to John Neff, she shares a bit more about her background with the members of the White Rose, in particular Kurt Huber. Living in Oxford, so close to a source of spirituality, I have a feeling of responsibility. The more so because in 1930, I took my philosophical degree working under Professor Huber's supervision at the Munich Institute of Experimental Psychology. I promised Huber's sister to do something about the case in general. This promise weighs on my conscience. And it's not only her personal connection to Huber that gives Josephine a feeling of responsibility, it's the fact that she knows from personal experience that any attempts she makes to get someone else to take interest will basically be in vain. 
Having had Huber's book returned to me, I was about to talk to one or the other Oxford historian or philosopher whom I happen to know. Alas, I know the answers in advance. They will show understanding, sympathy, readiness. Yet, either the whole thing will be outside their sphere, or at the best, they will ask the book to be sent to them. A year will pass. They will not have glimpsed at it. And, being an unimportant person outside the rarefied atmosphere of Oxford University, how could I remind them, bothering them, to read, to write, to become concerned? Now, a question that I had for Professor Fleischman, which actually was not related to the White Rose, but I just felt like I had to ask, was in regards to the last encounter that Josephine had ever with her brother Boris. It was in 1935, and it was, I believe, at a train station in Berlin when he was on his way to present at a writer's conference in Paris. He, he didn't want to go, but he was sent to represent the Soviet Writers' Union and to sort of show off um, on behalf of his country something he really did not want to do. And I just thought there was something tragic about their last encounter being so brief. So I asked Professor Fleischmann about it, and it actually took us in an interesting direction. Boris was on his way to Paris to participate in the anti-fascist Congress of Writers. There. It was a very short stay. And she traveled to the uh, to Berlin in order to spend with him a few minutes that were at their disposal. Um, because it was clear that you know he will not be able to stop for a longer time and had to avoid a longer stay because of his participation in the anti-fascist meeting. Which he didn't want to participate in at all, from what I recall. He didn't want to go there also, because first of his apolitical stance, and because he understood that he became just an instrument of propaganda, Mm -hmm. of Stalinist propaganda in this confrontation with um, Nazi regime. The tragic reality of those times is that Josephine and the rest of her family in Germany really had no idea what Boris, what her brother was experiencing throughout the 30s and this chapter of his life, in part because the lack of proximity and contact, but also, again, because all the mail was censored. And just as in Nazi Germany, as it would become the case later on, there was such a tight hold on people's communications. That was already the case in Soviet Russia in the 20s and the 30s. Boris Pasternak, he was declared the premier Soviet poet in the 1930s. And this position created a bunch of challenges for him, in part because his signature poetic style was really based on playing with the ambiguity of language. And this was diametrically opposed to the one permitted style in the Soviet era, which was Soviet realism. So essentially, not long after he received this very uh, prominent title and accolade, he basically stopped creating original works and would only do translations because he felt that it was safer. And two decades later, when Dr. Zhivago was published abroad in 1957, it became the subject of 
an enormous scandal. Pasternak got into terrible trouble with his own country because he was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature for Dr. Zhivago. The novel was perceived as a critique of the Soviet era of communism. And even though there are those elements in the book, there's so much more, but it wasn't available in Russian or in the Soviet Union until the 80s. So Pasternak declined the Nobel Prize. He was told that if he were to leave to accept the award in Sweden, he would never be allowed back into the Soviet Union. So he declined the award. He was publicly shamed and humiliated. He was kicked out of the writer's union. All the other Soviet writers were forced to sign a letter denouncing him. And he died a few years later. So Again, the, even though this happened after Josephine wrote her essay, the seeds of suffering terrible consequences for one's creative expression were already planted within the Pasternak family. In fact, Josephine wrote in her memoir in the 60s that Boris burned himself for the sake of his art. You know, to better understand how important for uh, Josephine was the case of Furik's moral and what is hidden behind her portrait of him is that from the point of view of Boris Pasternak that he expressed in his letter to his parents in 1933 in uh, I, if I don't mistake it was already in April or in May of 1933 that he spoke of the Nazi and Soviet regime as two twins, as two wings of the same phenomenon. Equated, mm -hmm. that's a somewhat heretical idea from the point of view of any Soviet citizen in 1933, and that's something that is officially banned to um, pronounce even today in Russia mm -hmm. under Putin. Such comparison is um, outlawed. And, and can you say more about what did he mean by that? What was he saying was so similar? Look, just on the basis of the short period of three or four months after uh, Hitler's rise to power, he already discerned what we later came to call totalitarianism. Yes, totalitarian mm -hmm. regime. And the essence of both regimes is the rejection of Christian, of Christianity, of Christian norms and ideas. Mm -hmm. And so that's the rejection of God, but it's also the rejection of individuality as an extension. Uh, 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 yes. This is, this, uh, In both Soviet Russia and Nazi Germany, a foundational pillar behind the ideology was this notion that extraordinary measures were justified in pursuit of this collective good. And that sounds great if you're part of the group of people for whom the collective good is inactive, but it's not so great when you're not. And part of what was really interesting in Soviet Russia was just how quickly that definition could change. Particularly, we saw this in the 1930s. Uh, 36 to 38 was the period known as the Great Purge. Even people who had been high-ranking members of the Soviet party one day, the next were found to be enemies of the state. Many of these individuals were convicted in show trials, which became quite popular in the Soviet Union 
in the late 30s and also served as a model for the trials that political dissidents would face in Nazi Germany, including the members of the White Rose. A show trial is basically when the judiciary has determined the outcome already, but the court proceedings are there to send a message and to set an example for what happens to traitors. So in the Soviet Union, the defendants were basically forced to go along with it. They were forced to confess to crimes they didn't commit and participate in this political theater in order to send a message. And still the outcome would be being sent to the gulag or execution anyways. Back to the similarities between Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia. The interrogation transcripts of Kurt Huber he talked about this too, where he was sort of a very conservative German who it sounds like initially was sort of in favor of, of a more nationalistic stance, but he participated and wrote that leaflet because he accused um, Hitler of making the country more socialist, in fact, in terms of its suppression of individual rights you know, and sort of the needless slaughter of young Germans. Um, so it seems like he, he was in many ways dr drawing that parallel, whereas I know that Alexander was not, he, he wrote that he was not any fan of Bolshevism or, or communism, but there were others around the White Rose who were more left-leaning. But um, it's just interesting, so many things, but to me it looks like these cultures were actually very similar in how they treated uh, their societies. Mm-hmm. No, he, uh, as everywhere, the nuances are of utmost importance. Mm. I don't know to what extent, you know, I um, I paid attention to his testimonies during the in interrogation that he was not pro-Bolshevik mm -hmm. and rather monarchist-leaning mm -hmm. person. Mm -hmm. uh, probably it was part of his interpretation of himself as a Russian, as being mm -hmm. Russian along with being German. Right. Because, you know, it's such split of identity mm -hmm. may be quite a painful state and right. one must find additional support for every element of him. And I think that this can be First of all, it could be prompted by his contact with Russians in Munich. Mm -hmm. You know, Russians in Munich were much, much more right-wing, monarchist, Tsarist-thinking uh, persons than the rest of Russian emigration in Germany, in Berlin, mm -hmm. for example. Uh, Munich was a kind of the capital of right-wing Russia in Germany in the 20s, in the early 20s. In the 30s, in generally speaking, the Russian community there were very small. And um, Russian Orthodox congregation was also small. So it means that any contact even chance contact could become more important for such person as Shurik, mm -hmm. moral who tried to become perhaps more authentic in terms of Russianness than, you know, for example, his, his siblings. And the second factor that could 
also have some impact on him in this regard. Is his encounter with authentic Rafa when he went to this Gradsk area? This is when Alexander, Hans, and Vili were sent to the Eastern Front to be medics going alongside the German army in the summer and fall of 1942. And you know, he attended uh, Russian Orthodox Church services in the country, in the place where Orthodox churches were closed one after another in the 30s. Mm-hmm. It was Hitler who reopened these mm-hmm. churches. Why? Yes, it is a known, a known fact. Wow. And then Stalin followed his suit and reopened the Russian Orthodox churches after the long period of closure and brought back the Orthodox priests from the prisons to serve. Mm-hmm. Yes, but this is a, yes, such religious revival in Russia coincided with the intrusion of German troops, of Nazi troops there. Do you think, why why did Stalin do that? It was, do you think it was to increase oh, morale for Stalin the war? Because Bolshevism was not um, um, compatible with Christianity. That, right. That's understandable, Bolshevism. Mm-hmm. As by the way, it was not compatible with Nazism, but mm-hmm. yes, but uh, and we know that Catholic resistance to Hitler was quite a strong phenomenon, quite a perceptible phenomenon. In this sense, uh, Hitler, I would say, was more cautious than Stalin and the Bolsheviks during the twenties and early thirties. It is, it is clear that Hitler learned a lot mm-hmm. from Russian Bolsheviks during his formative years. Right. Well, and also, um, you know, the judge for the trials of the White Rose and so many of the political dissidents in the 40s, he went to the Vyshinsky trials in the 1930s in in Russia oh. and, mm-hmm. you know, and, got some inspiration. And learned, yes, learned how to conduct the trials. Learning from each other's yeah. influence and yeah, we're talented students. Mm-hmm. If you go on YouTube, you can actually see video of the judge Roland Freisler, who presided over the White Rose trials. He's the one I was mentioning who had basically learned his skill from Andrei Vyshinsky, who was the prosecutor under Stalin. And here's some of what Roland Freisler sounds like. I remember watching these videos in Professor Bernhardt's class when I was a freshman in college and being just kind of stunned by how chilling they are. One of the most amazing things that happened to me over the course of working on this project was receiving access to information about certain members of the White Rose that are not commonly available in the English language. And the biggest example of this was when I reached out to Josephine's son to get permission to use her words in this project, he offered to introduce me to Igor Hramo, who had written a biography of Alexander Schmorel 
which is available in Russian and in German. In fact, I think I remember seeing a copy of the book in Josephine's file at the Hoover Archives, but I couldn't read it. So Charles Pasternak put me in touch with Igor, who sent me an English version of his book that hadn't been published. So it was really fascinating to read his research, many of the letters and anecdotes from the living family members of Alexander Shmora. It gave me certain insights that I hadn't come across elsewhere before in my research. He was enlisted as a, he was drafted as a soldier, but he sort of had a, a nervous breakdown at the thought of having to fight against Russians. So he became a medic, which was a way for him to avoid having yeah. to be a combat soldier. I just thought it was, it was one of the things that reminded me of studying Dr. Zhivago of all these medical students who are also very sort of poetically, artistically inclined, and also in contrast to the fact that it was so much of the medical establishment that enabled the atrocities of Nazi Germany and um, were, you know, not really abiding to a, a moral code that maybe existed before. No, first of all, of course, his father encouraged him to pursue the medical career or even pressed him to do this. Uh, rather than sculpture, in the belief that, you know, it is a safer career than any, anything else. His own life story was a kind of confirmation, a proof to this. Mm -hmm. But then Furyk really realized an additional benefit from this uh, because of the possibility of avoiding the combat situation. Returning to his Gvatsk period, mm -hmm. it was there within perhaps the church when he encountered the parishioners mm -hmm. who of course felt happy because of the possibility now to be at the church services, to, to, to you know, to attend church mm -hmm. services, to pray and not to, to fear. Mm -hmm. the and from conversation with them, he also learned about the agonizing facts of the so-called collectivization of the destruction of peasantry in Russia, in Russia and such hatred for the Bolshevik regime, mm -hmm. of course, you know, was um, instilled in him. Mm -hmm not just by his family's recollections about the civil war, but from these conversations of um, in Russia, mm -hmm. in his homeland, mm. in his spiritual homeland. Now back to Josephine and her essay. Now, of course, it is funny how she recalls how she learned about this from the BBC German service mm -hmm. broadcast that was... Mm -hmm. uh, directed as the audience in German-speaking countries during the war. There's this um, con connection of two different names she right. knew, but she couldn't connect them right. because they were not connected in real life until a certain period at the end of 1942 when they sought an introduction to Huber. And uh, what is remarkable here that it happened after this trip to Russia, mm -hmm. 
-hmm. of these um, medical students, mm -hmm. including Shuri, because they came back with different, with a different eyes, with a different kind of determination right. in this um, apocalyptic atmosphere of the imminent collapse of their country. Mm -hmm. It was already in the air, you know, this mm -hmm. premonitions of the imminent collapse of the German state. And it seems like Kurt Huber would not have contributed to the White Rose if not for hearing about his students' experience that, at the front. He probably was not thinking about this at yeah. all. Yes. But as soon as he learned that there is a group of youth, you know, mm -hmm. who started already, yeah. There is an additional one, uh, also somewhat breathtaking coincidence, that one of the members of this group, Falk... Mm -hmm. um, Harnack? Yeah, Harnack, yeah. was also somewhat indirectly connected with the Pasternak family. Oh, wow. Falk Harnack was obviously not one of the six individuals who were executed as part of the White Rose activities, but he was sort of in the circles as an ancillary figure and apparently did contribute to the text of the fifth leaflet. In any case, even if there is no personal acquaintance, these two families had to know of their existence because his uncle, a very prominent Theologian, mm. very prominent. This was the family of Baltic German origin, mm. speaking Russian. Mm -hmm. That's I think I think Josephine mentioned the uncle in her memoir. But of course, yeah, yes, of course. Uh, Leonid Pasternak painted his portrait. That's one of his right. most famous yes and i um, and he was instrumental in uh, hardnack uh, was instrumental in um, securing an academic career of boris boris's um, cousin olga freidenberg who mm. was a great classical scholar and hardnack's letter to her was a kind of her introduction into the highest levels of her professional field. Wow. Hmm. And this letter was obtained through Leonid Pasternak in, in Berlin. Wow. Yes. But, you know, this Falk Harnack was the younger brother of the member of the Red Capella mm -hmm. organization. You know, this is much better known. It's a, it was a communist resistance? Communist resistance, moreover, you know, this was a spy network of the Soviets, mm -hmm. even before yeah. the war. And his uh, elder brother was a known fact. He was enlisted as an agent, as a secret mm -hmm. agent wow. of Soviet secret services. Wow. Before so, he was, yes, he was a great sympathizer mm -hmm. of Marxism and Soviet regime. This was Falk himself or his brother? His brother. His brother. Because I think already executed mm -hmm. wow. by the time of his joining by the White Rose. 
I think Falk com- contributed, he helped write the fifth leaflet, I believe. And um, Kurt Huber didn't want to have anything to do with anything communist. So there were a lot of um, disagreements, apparently, over sort of what ideological direction they were going. So I think that's that's very interesting. I didn't know that that the Red Capella was a spy network of the Soviet Union. That's so interesting. I recently read a memoirs of one of the highest highest place NKVD official. The NKVD was the precursor to the KGB, basically the Soviet secret police. In which he mentions this Red Capella uh, and the um, being re- recruited by his organization in the 30s, you know. Also, very, very tragic fates of the participants, of those who survived after the war mm-hmm. were tortured by the Soviet secret police and condemned to long prison terms. Such a complicated, fascinating yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. century history is. I just found it so interesting. I, I mean, it's not connected to, to the White Rose, but what it meant to be a, a more public person during that time, you know, and learning about Pasternak and how basically had to censor himself and how the, the fame and attention became a problem for his artistic life. There are maybe some parallels to Kurt Huber in that regard. It seems like his academic legacy was largely erased and he sort of lost opportunities because he wouldn't use his work for Nazi propaganda. As far as I remember, he is the author of two books. But he, he was a, an expert in uh, musical folklore and all of his... Musical theory, uh, yes. Many of yes. his uh, articles went out of print and were never published again. And um, it was he, he, he basically couldn't get any rank beyond sort of an adjunct professor after he wouldn't comply. Josephine speaks about him very, very compelling ways, that he is completely absorbed by his own ideas, by his dedication to his profession. When she is saying this, I imagine that she would use precisely the same expressions to describe her brother in everyday life, being somewhat remote from everyday concerns, being completely immersed into the world of his ideas and so on. And of course, it was not something that any totalitarian regime would embrace, accept, encourage. Mm-hmm. The same was in the Soviet Union. When such persons, such scholars appeared, you know, they were not allowed to proceed until they were loyalty. It's endlessly fascinating. There's, I feel like I still know so little about all of it. But, uh... So do I. But <laughs> always when we embark on any path, you know, in the beginning we are completely disoriented and despaired. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. By the abundance of unknown. Yeah. But then slowly, slowly we find a kind of thread. <laughs> <laughs>